Let us pray. Gracious God, be with us today as we study your holy word, and in particular, Romans chapter 11. Bless us, we ask you, with insight and wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to share my screen here. And Romans 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a sluggish spirit, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and keep their backs forever bent. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then the branches are also holy. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not vaunt yourselves over the branches. If you do vaunt yourselves, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so we start with Romans 11, where 
in chapter five, Paul is suggesting that God has not rejected his people, but that there is a remnant chosen by grace. And whenever we think of Paul's understanding of those of Israel who believe as a remnant, I think there's really two things we need to keep in mind as we have a conversation about what exactly that means. Um, one is that we need to consider the connection between Paul's understanding of a remnant and that of the first fruits that he talks about in Romans 8. He says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that, of course, is tied to the idea of Pentecost, where the first fruits of the harvest were presented, meaning that the church as first fruits is a down payment of a larger harvest to come. And if we look at what Isaiah, for instance, writes about the remnant, I think that something similar is being hinted at. So one example is Isaiah 11.1, 1, which says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is a very familiar Christmas passage, but the idea is that when God's people are reduced to a stump, that out of that stump, something new grows, that a shoot will spring forth, that new life will come from the very stump of the people of God. And I think that Paul is saying something very similar here. Uh, later on, when he talks about how much more uh, Paul is hinting to the possibility or rather the reality that God is not yet done. But one of the things that uh, I think that we also need to name because he references the story of Elijah uh, when God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We have some very interesting comparisons and typology happening between Paul and Elijah. I think that Paul saw himself in Elijah's story. So you recall from your study of Kings that when Elijah was running away from the wicked queen Jezebel, who worshiped Baal and wanted to kill Elijah and the other prophets, that whenever he heard that still small voice, he did so um, outside of um, Arabia, or rather he was uh, near Sinai, Mount Oreb, which is in Arabia. And likewise, Paul tells us in Galatians that whenever he had his conversion, that he didn't go to Jerusalem to be with the other apostles, but he went to hear that still small voice in Arabia. And so you kind of have both Elijah and Paul um, receiving the divine call or being renewed in the divine call in Arabia. And the parallels kind of go even deeper. So if you remember the story of Elijah, what did God tell him to do? but to anoint a new king, that's King Jehu, and what is Paul doing but proclaiming the new king, Jesus, uh, Jesus, and so you have some really interesting things happening with Paul seeing his prophetic call to mirror that of Elijah, but nonetheless, um, the larger point here is that Israel has stumbled, but the point is not to knock them down uh, so that they fall forever but rather that through their stumbling, salvation has been opened to the Gentiles, which we know from Paul's letter to the Romans was God's plan all along. But now Paul is expounding upon his idea that this is to make Israel jealous so that God's people look at what's happening and that they themselves come into the church. 
And we have that wonderful phrase, um, how much more? If their stumbling means riches for the world, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We have Paul use the same phrase in Romans 5, 17, when he says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned, how much more uh, will the gift of righteousness reign to the one man, Jesus Christ? And whenever Paul uses this phrase, how much more, we recall that in the backdrop of Paul's understanding of what God's doing here in Romans is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, he writes about this in chapter five when he says that Abraham's body was as good as dead uh, and that he was 99 years old and that Sarah was 100 years old whenever they had Isaac, the child of the promise. But we remember whenever that angel came to Abram and said, you will have a son. And uh, we recall that Isaac received his name. Isaac means laughter because Abraham laughed at the angel's promise. And there's that wonderful line in the book of Genesis when the angel says to Abram, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And so whenever Paul uses that phrase, how much more, I think that we're being drawn to that encounter, that moment where the angel says to Abram, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? If a 99-year-old man can have a baby, then certainly God can restore his own people who at present have stumbled. The argument goes something like that. But pastorally speaking, we have an issue where the Gentiles, to look at verse 18, are vaunting themselves or exalting themselves over the branches, over the people of Israel. And notice that this is the exact opposite of the problem we have in Galatians. If you read Galatians, you have Gentiles who are so enamored with Jews and with the law that they want to get circumcised and make keeping the law a prerequisite for being a Christian. And Paul says, no, you know, God has done something new here. You're already a new creation. Stop being enamored with the law. The law, he says, was a babysitter. And now in the church in Rome, you have these Gentiles who say, well, let's just get rid of Israel altogether. Let's just throw the law out. Let's throw out this tradition altogether. And here Paul has to say, okay, wait a second. You're taking this way too far. It's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. And then he gives us the posture we are to have in God's presence as a result of this. And I underlined it. So do not become proud, he says, but stand in awe. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, he says. And so, you know, Paul is not like trying to scare the daylights out of these Gentiles. He, he wants to remind them that they've been saved by grace, but he also wants to remind them that God is holy, that they didn't, you know, sneak into the body of Christ because they're super cool and wonderful people, but rather because God is good and merciful and loving and that God has grafted them in. But then the argument goes, if God has grafted you in, um, the wild olive shoot, do you really think it's that hard for God to graft his own people back in? Is that really too tough for God? And, you know, if you're listening to this out loud in the first century, and you're one of those 
Gentiles vaunting yourself over, you know, those unbelieving Jews in the synagogue, the whole point is for your heart to sink a little bit and to say, oh, wait, okay, God is, is just getting started. Uh, I need to stand in awe. I need to be humble. And I need to pray for the full inclusion of God's people, uh, because that's going to mean an even greater blessing for the world. Verse 25, so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so um, verse 25, you know, Paul's intent here is that the church be humble, that they not vaunt themselves over anyone, but that they kind of stand in awe at the mercy and grace of God. And so he says in verse 25, do not claim to be wiser than you are. And we recall what Paul says in Romans 1 about the chief sin, where he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That claiming to be wise is really at the heart of the idolatrous posture. He'll say something similar in Romans 12. We'll study that next week where he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. And so whenever we think about what is required for the church to manifest the unity that we have received as a gift through the power of the spirit. One thing that will disrupt that unity um, so quickly and so pervasively is a posture where we actually uh, think that we know all the answers, where we do claim to be wiser than we actually are. You know, Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians when he says, has Christ been divided? Um, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so um, this idea that, you know, having all the answers, knowledge, how it puffs us up, but love builds us up, um, that is not the first time Paul has written about this. And ultimately, this posture of love is going to be one of humility and uh, an acknowledgement that what Paul's talking about is a mystery. Verse 25, Paul calls this a mystery. And what Paul has been expounding upon is a mystery. And um, when it comes to kind of talking about what that means, when Paul really brings this home as it pertains to the people of Israel, he says in verse 29, for the gifts 
and the calling of God are irrevocable. The Greek word here is uh, the same root as the word repentable. It, it basically means unrepentable. Uh, and, and that word metanoia, where we get the word repent, it means uh, to turn or to change one's mind. And essentially what Paul is saying here is that when it comes to his promise to Israel, God has not changed his mind, that God cannot change God's mind, that God cannot turn from the goodness that he promised to Abram when he called him from the land of Haran, and that what God is ultimately up to is the fulfillment of that original promise. And of course, not the first time Paul has said this, but in case we forget, this is part of the original promise that God has made. And then he asked the Gentiles to reflect on why exactly they have been grafted in. Verse 30, just as you were once disobedient, but have received mercy. So now they've been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may receive mercy. And then Paul has that sweeping statement, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so he may be merciful to all. Um, I take that word all to mean Jew and Gentile alike. You know, essentially, we're all in the same boat. Uh, it's not that, you know, um, God had one rule for the people of Israel and a different rule for the Gentiles, but that the revelation of the gospel, uh, of the righteousness of God, or the covenant faithfulness of God, is that we've all been subjected to disobedience uh, and in need of mercy, and that this mercy has now come to us. And, you know, we could have guessed that this is where Paul was going after reading Romans 1 and 2, where there's a level playing field where all fall short of the glory of God. Paul has already said this. And so by the time we get to Romans 11.32, Paul is really just reiterating what he has been saying all along, which is that mercy is the essence of hesed uh, or covenant faithfulness. Hesed is the Hebrew word uh, for that, for mercy, for grace, that mercy and justice are ultimately uh, tied together. And the reason that Paul, in earlier chapters of Romans, um, expounds upon the limitations of law is that his point is that ultimately the law can't help us with this, uh, other than to mirror back to us our own need for mercy. And so it really comes down to mercy and grace for Paul and how this has been offered to all, Jew and Gentile alike, in Jesus Christ, and that it is mercy that will create this one new man, this one new humanity that we've been talking about in our conversations. And then finally, before we move on to Romans 12 next week, make sure in your own prayer time you give Romans 11, 33 through 36 a good read. You know, ultimately what Paul does is he just kind of falls apart praising the wisdom and the mercy of God, but he basically says that God's judgments are, are unsearchable, that his ways are inscrutable. And so now we know why Paul has said things like, what if, and perhaps. Ultimately, the only thing I believe that Paul is confident in, the only thing that he says for certain, is that God has kept God's promise that mercy is the essence of that promise, that Gentiles were to be grafted in from the very beginning, uh, and that 
um, our faith in Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the mercy that comes from that is really the essence of what God is doing. And so, you know, this raises the question, you know, once Paul says, how unscrutable are his ways, how unsearchable are his judgments, how do we read Romans 9 through 11? Is Paul guessing? You know, has Paul received a clear revelation from the Lord, and should we take it as systematic theology, as doctrinal truth? You know, because Paul ends this section by basically saying, God's judgments are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable, this is a mystery, and I'm willing to stake my life on a few elements of this mystery. And so there's a little bit of a tension in terms of how Romans 11 comes to an end, at least as I read it. 